and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 11, The Ballad of Bad Benny. By this point, we have a handle on how fascist Italy came about, and what some of the initial implications were for both the Italian people and the world. But we haven't spent so much time with the man who inserted himself into the center of all this, Benito Amilcare Andrea Mussolini. This will be the first in a larger set of biographical episodes I plan on doing, with other familiar faces getting their own episodes or entire miniseries down the line. It won't be their whole lives, merely their lives up to the point where they gain power, and their biographies start to become intermixed with the nation that they lead. So, Mussolini, for example, will have a fairly short introduction, as he is in charge of Italy for most of our narrative. Others, like Hitler and FDR, will have their biographies take them up to the late 20s and early 30s. Sorry, Churchill fans, you'll have to wait until towards the end in 1940 to actually get to him. In doing these, I might risk annoying those who would cry, Great Man History. But these are the figures who managed to harness the historical moment and exerted a greater influence than a single person could reasonably be expected to achieve. They certainly stand out in contrast to the mediocre figures that surrounded them at the time. In any case, much like the state that he came to command, History has not been favorable to Benito Mussolini. He has been dismissed as a thuggish buffoon, his polished chrome dome and jutting chin, physical compensations for a lacking intellect. And even as the world turns ever more rightward and some budding modern fascists seek to reassess him, even they would have to admit that he crashed and burned real bad in the end. With that being said, and the obvious failures aside, he was a more complex figure than he was eventually given credit for. Make no mistake, he was a brute who did not shrink from violence. He was, on the other hand, an avid reader and enthusiastic philosopher, although I do deliberately use the word enthusiastic and not talented. He was a forceful personality that was simultaneously deeply insecure, and all his life played a dangerous game with a weak hand. His boldness and energy served him well for a while, but hinted at the disasters of the future when more determined opponents presented themselves. He never reached a level of violence and terror achieved by future allies like Hitler or the Japanese Empire, but he was a committed authoritarian who preached the triumph of the Italian nation above its lessers. He would come to dream of a reborn Roman Empire founded on the destruction of its neighbors. Then again, that would be a dream that came later, only after he established himself. Before all that, there was merely a small boy, born into modest surroundings in the hills of northeast Italy. On the 29th of July, 1883, in the tiny village of Dovia, near the town of Perdapio, a son was born to Alessandro and Rosa Mussolini. Alessandro was a local blacksmith and an active member of the local socialist movement. He never sought out office himself, but published articles supporting other socialists and assisted them locally with their campaigns. Rosa was a schoolteacher, something that Mussolini would be extremely proud of all his life. The baby was given the first name Benito, after the contemporary Mexican president Benito Juarez. His middle two names were taken from a pair of socialists that Alessandro had worked for. Benito Mussolini was born into a young nation, Italy having completed its last major acquisition in 1871. And like much of the rest of the nation, his early life was a local one. The region of Robagna is situated at the northeast of the country, south of the city of Bologna and east of Florence. To its eastern side was the Adriatic Sea, and to the west was the Apennine mountain range that runs down central Italy. It was in this hill country that the Mussolinis lived. The region had previously fallen under the purview of the old Papal States, which had managed to exercise only a loose control of the land. 
This meant that the communities of the area maintained an independent character and were hotbeds of socialists and anarchists. While both of his parents were gainfully employed, and the family considered at least a step above the average peasant, life could probably have been better for the Mussolinis. Benito slept in the kitchen with his brother, Arnaldo, who was two years his younger. I haven't really mentioned Arnaldo, and I don't really plan on changing that a whole lot. But the brothers were close. And when Benito rose to power, Arnaldo was right there with him, acting as a quiet advisor and right-hand man. He himself would die of a heart attack in 1931, aged only 46. Benito's sister, Edvige, five years younger, did not follow him into the fascist movement, but they were close throughout their lives. Part of the financial problems was that Alessandro also kept a mistress on the side, something that was, uh, permitted in society, and something that Benito would pick up once he grew up. There were few creature comforts. Food was simple, and much of the fabled Italian cuisine wasn't on the menu for them. Think more vegetable soups and simple grains. And once he got old enough, Benito joined his dad in the smithy, working the bellows. Part of Mussolini's later myth admitted that he had been a strong-willed and rebellious child. Given how he grew up, it really isn't hard to take that claim at face value. He picked fights and joined other kids in pilfering some extra food around the local farms. He disliked attending church, the atheism of his father rubbing off on him, probably to the dismay of his devoutly Catholic mother. He claimed to not be able to stand the smell of incense, and hated the droning of the chants and organs. Once actually in church, he would try to find some way to excuse himself and just go play outside. Some enjoyment was derived from actively reading the Bible, a sign of his future intellectual curiosity. Eventually, Benito grew to be enough of a problem that by age nine, he was sent away to a boarding school some 15 miles to the north in the town of Benza. Rosa hoped the school, managed by the Catholic Celsian fathers, would instill some discipline in her son. It did not go well. Benito was in tears upon being dropped off and then closed up within himself. The fathers placed him at the bottom rank out of three tiers of students, an indication of where Benito stood in the social strata. This was probably the start of Mussolini's sensitivities towards class that would affect him from here on out. He watched the boys that were given better food, clothes, and sleeping quarters with open contempt and hated the fathers for maintaining such a system. It didn't help very much that the fathers probably knew Alessandro by reputation in the socialist movement and singled out his son for a little payback. For a miserable two years, Mussolini languished in the school, until finally one fight got out of hand and he broke out his pinknife and stabbed the other boy through the hand. He was allowed to finish out the school year, but was not welcomed back after, much to the relief of the fathers and Benito himself. The next stop was a state-run school at Forlim Popoli. This one went a smidge better. He was still miserable and was almost expelled after another stabbing incident, but the more secular venue worked wonders on his studies. He managed to get through his schooling with no major issues, and was even noted for his oratorical skills. He was also noted for his temper and passions, which were being directed less towards fights as he entered his late teens, and more towards the injustices and backwardness that he perceived in the world around him. He had followed his father and become a committed socialist, though he professed a distaste for the less revolutionary and more sedate comrades he found in the area at the time. He wanted to make some kind of mark in the world, though how a poor young man from the backwaters of Italy presumed to do that, well, he had not really figured that out yet. After graduating, he tried to apply for a position as a secretary with the Perdapio Commune, but was shot down for his inexperience, only being 18 at the time. 
He did, though, secure a teaching job at the town of Galtieri in early 1902. But he didn't last long there. Not yet 19, he had secured the spot based on, on his reputation, as well as his father's, as a socialist, which was the leading ideology of the area, including on the town council that made such appointments. However, he showed immaturity and did not impress the community by being out drinking and gambling well into the night. The final straw came when he struck up an affair with the wife of a local soldier. The relationship brought out the worst in young Benito, as the passion that attracted her to him also led him to abuse her. There were arguments, beatings, and yes, even a stabbing. His treatment of women was probably the biggest indicator in these early days that something was seriously wrong here. He would later brag that he did what he liked with her. Nor was the soldier's wife the only example. He claimed also to have taken a poor-looking girl to a room and took her by force. She was left sobbing on the floor after the experience, screaming that he had taken her honor. Mussolini reflected later in life that maybe he had, but what sort of honor was there to take? Yeah, just a real winner there. With his teaching contract with the town not being renewed, Mussolini had little to no prospects of gainful employment. The answer to his predicament was to expand his horizons and journey abroad, like so many of his countrymen had done before him. And while America did cross his mind, he opted for something a little closer to home and boarded a train for Switzerland in June 1902. He didn't intend to settle, which was itself not uncommon, with many immigrants planning on doing a little work, make a little money, then head back home a little richer and a little wiser. He arrived in the city of Luzanne, and his first bout of employment was supposedly as a construction laborer running a wheelbarrow. He would also claim to work as a wine seller and as a butcher's boy. Conveniently, he would state that his educational talents were usually noticed quickly, which allowed for quick promotions to desk work. Mussolini never completely took to his Swiss surroundings, even among the Italian sections of Swiss society. This wasn't a distaste for the place, per se, merely that it did not appear that at any time Mussolini considered settling down permanently in a new country. Rather, his time away gave him ample opportunity to broaden his intellectual horizons. He devoured the greatest hits of the past century of philosophical thought, and became active with the local socialist scene. He spent his free time with the movement or among intellectuals and bohemians. He would drink with them, argue, and demand of all of them when the moment would come that the corrupt and uneven world they lived in would be swept away. He was demanding when it was going to be his time. He got into enough trouble with a public speech that called for strikes and street violence in the city of Bern that the authorities got tired of him and tossed him back on the other side of the Italian border. He simply crossed back after a week, not slowing down in the slightest. He did return home to visit his mom when she was sick in the fall of 1903, and this time picked up his brother and took him along back to Switzerland. By this time, Mussolini was rapidly losing all patience with the so-called reformist wing of the socialist movement. While the Socialist Party did not form alliances and refrained from acting on legislation, the idea within the party was to eventually gain either an outright majority in Parliament or enough leverage to get their legislation enacted. Naturally, the Liberals had managed to fend off attempts at such far-reaching reforms that they had advocated. Mussolini, though, was a young man full of passion and energy and was rapidly turning to frustration with his supposed comrades. Leadership wanted to peacefully reform the state into a utopia. Mussolini had come to favor a purifying fire that would burn away the corrupted elements. This carried on until the end of 1904, when Mussolini pulled an about-face and returned to Italy in order to serve out his required time in the army. Like other nations, Italy had mandatory conscription for a period of time, and Mussolini was not exempt. 
He had actually missed his initial date to report for duty and had become wanted for arrest in his home country. However, upon the ascension of King Victor Emmanuel III, there was a national pardon on all deserters as part of the festivities, which gave Mussolini a window to return home and serve out his time in the army. This could be seen as a little startling, given how he had been so publicly anti-militarist as a socialist. But if you're not picking up on a flexible nature, allow this switch in lifestyle to make it obvious for you. Mussolini always did what was convenient for Mussolini. Switzerland was also starting to become a dead end. He had been expelled from too many cantons for his calls for violent action, and he was now at least noted at the national level among socialists, which also meant that authorities weren't going to tolerate him for much longer. By this time, he was also very well educated, and he had taught himself French and German. After a spell in the army, he could very well start a real life back at his home country. For a little under two years, from 1904 to 1906, Mussolini was in the army. He took to it rather well and was even accorded two months leave to be with his mom as she was dying. She passed in February 1905, leaving her son despondent at her passing. Once he was out of the army in September 1906, he made his second go of becoming a schoolteacher. This time it went a little better, but only because his first try had gone so badly. He went from place to place, first to Tolmezzo in the Venetian Alps, then to Oniglia along the coast west of Genoa. He didn't perform terribly as a school teacher this time, but it was obvious his temperament was not suited for the role. He again engaged in affairs of every kind and would be out and about drinking and starting political arguments. The kids he taught picked up on his oddities, his disheveled appearance, his grandiose proclamations, his penchant for smashing his fist on his desk while swearing at them. Behavior normal for a future dictator, maybe not a literature teacher. The wild behavior caught up with him, and while he was back in his hometown, he involved himself in a row on behalf of the local sharecroppers. The authorities decided to get rid of him and send him to prison for three months. Once he got out, Mussolini decided school teaching wasn't in the cards going forward and decided to recommit fully to the socialist movement. He also decided to immigrate again in February 1909, this time to the town of Trento in the southern Tyrol, then part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. His purpose for going there specifically is because his contacts in the socialist movement had set him up as a secretary of the local socialist branch and editor of the local newspaper. This was absolutely perfect for him, as all it required was for him to make speeches, which he loved doing, and was actually pretty good at, and managing a newspaper, which he at very least really enjoyed doing. Living in Trento also placed Mussolini on a nationalistic and ideological fault line. It was here in the South Tyrol, that the German world met the Italian one. To nationalists, even those within the Socialist Party, it should be governed by Italians, not by Germans reporting to their masters in Vienna. Mussolini did not yet break with socialist orthodoxy, though, and immediately set to work denouncing militarism and nationalism like he did back in the old Swiss days. He also denounced the Catholic Church, which was greatly annoying to the traditionalist Austrian state. The Empire's police monitored his stay in the country, and eventually picked him up on a trumped-up charge of theft. They kept him locked up for two weeks, but could present no evidence at the trial, and Mussolini was acquitted of all charges. The Austrians weren't done, though, and expelled him from the country, just dropping him off back in Italy. However, by this point, Mussolini had earned some real bona fides from his pulpit in Trento among his uh, socialist comrades. Now, he actually had a shot of getting into national politics. First, though, he would have an important interlude while he was back home. 
While he had a bigger profile than before, that didn't translate immediately. So, he crashed at his dad's place. Alessandro had given up his old blacksmithing gig and bought an inn which he ran with his mistress and her kids. And among her children was one Rachel Guidi, who Mussolini began a relationship with. By early 1910, this relationship had progressed far enough that they had moved in together. And by September 1910, they had a daughter, Etta. They weren't married yet, and wouldn't until 1915, but would function as a family from here on out. Rochelle was a modest woman, also devout in her Catholic faith and devoted to her family, even her often cheating partner. Which sounds a lot like Mussolini's mom, but I'm not saying anything here, just pointing out coincidences. Rochelle was not terribly comfortable in the halls of power or among the elites of the country, so she would keep more than a little distance in the future, but they always held affection for each other. This was probably due to both of them actually enjoying family life, something that other dictators had trouble with. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Hitler. In January 1910, Mussolini secured an editing job for the local socialist paper in the city of Forli. It wasn't much. The paper was only four pages every edition, and he wrote most of the material himself. But he kept them, but he kept them employed, and secured him a spot in the national conversation. Not to mention, national conventions. He took to public speaking again, which garnered a positive response. This was all modest and low-level, politically speaking, but gave him at least some platform to work from. He also continued to beat the drum of violent revolution against the liberal order, and railed against the half-measures and inaction coming from some of the socialist leadership. His writing style was direct and oftentimes cruel. If anyone displeased him, they could be sure to be harangued on his pages. He was not a theorist. The finer points of Marx bored him, but he knew that society needed drastic change in favor of the common man which makes his eventual turn towards established interests later down the road all the sadder. At one point, he even led the local branch of the Socialist Party in breaking with the national one, although this proved only temporary. Meanwhile, Italy was going through greater convulsions. Prime Minister Giolitti was attempting to stabilize his position by extending suffrage to a larger segment of the male population, which would buy him initial popularity, but eventually just meant that a potentially larger share of the population could express their disillusionment with him. Giolitti also embarked on foreign adventures to achieve domestic popularity. In late September 1911, Giolitti brought Italy into a war with the Ottoman Empire and invaded their Libyan provinces. The Socialist Party denounced this aggressive, imperialist action and called for a general strike. Mussolini, of course, took it further and called for more direct action. A section of local railway was sabotaged to prevent troop movements, and the cavalry sent to restore order were directly engaged by the protesters. The authorities were not pleased by this act of defiance, and on October 14th, Mussolini was arrested. He used the November 18th trial as a propaganda opportunity to burnish his image, claiming he was merely a man of ideas and justice. He wound up getting a year in jail, but was released in five months in March 1912. At this point, he could feel momentum starting to build under him. The war with the Turks had done a great deal to discredit the reformist wing of the Socialist Party, and enhanced the more revolutionary wing. Many of the most prominent reformists had been rather quiet on protesting the war, and some had even broke ranks and celebrated the national victory. In July 1912, the Socialist Party Congress was held in Bologna, and Mussolini gave an impassioned call to remove any who had equivocated on the issues of anti-militarism and anti-imperialism. It was extremely well-received, and the revolutionary wing of the party assumed a leading place within the movement. Mussolini gained the editorship of the national-level socialist newspaper Avanti in December 1912, 
and moved his family to Milan. It was all coming together for the ill-behaved son of a blacksmith. Socially, this was a major change for the family. Milan was an honest-to-God major city and served as Italy's financial hub. Up to this point, most all the towns have been talking about have been just that, little ten to 30,000 at best local affairs. The provincial life was all they had been used to. Now Mussolini had a new prominence that he would have to grow into, and quickly. Poor Rochelle was completely out of her element and focused on their baby. All this time, Mussolini had been driven to prove that he belonged among revolutionaries, among intellectuals. Now was the put-up-or-shut-up time, and he knew it. He was at first incredibly nervous, and the insecurities that he carried with him bubbled up to the surface. The operators in the city, even among comrades, were connected in ways a provincial simply was not. His domineering attitude had to be contained on a stage like this, as the egos around him were backed by capability and influence far in excess what he was used to dealing with back home, or during his stints abroad. He started to take more care of his appearance and make himself seen in society. It was now, years into his work as an activist, that he was starting to really play the politics game. The city also presented the opportunity for different kinds of women to have affairs with, which he pursued with his characteristic passion, as well as his lack of foresight. Still, despite the distractions, things were going well for Mussolini. His editorship of Avanti by mid-1913 was unquestioned, and circulation quintupled up to 100,000. His position in Milan was secure, and he lived his day-to-day condemning the existing order and calling for action. By this time, though, doubts were starting to creep into Mussolini's mind about the viability of the socialist movement as a whole. He had seen in skirmishes with authorities and nationalists that the movement was ill-equipped to carry out the forceful action that he'd been calling for all these years. On the other side of the coin, followers of Avanti noticed that while the publication certainly called for action, it didn't really offer how that should come about or what was to be done in the aftermath of success. Very likely, Mussolini did not have the answers, nor was he attached to the kind of endgame that Marx offered. In this period, Mussolini attempted to launch an intellectual journal called Utopia, which was supposed to offer a platform for all types of political ideas to be debated. He claimed that this would better the party by presenting, dare I say, a marketplace of ideas, but in reality it showed how ideologically confused Mussolini had gotten by this point. He had vague notions of personal greatness, and had joined with the only movement that would have allowed someone of his social standing to a national position. But now he was starting to detect the limits of that movement, and he started feeling out for something else. What this process would have looked like is anybody's guess, because like so much else in the world, it was interrupted by the outbreak of World War I. The outbreak of war in August 1914 was kind of a disaster for international socialism. For example, one of the largest and oldest parties, the Socialist Party of Germany, cast aside its anti-militarist and anti-nationalist roots and came out in full favor in support of the war effort. This was repeated across Europe as internationalist movements swung around to support their home countries. Italy, though, remained neutral, and the Socialist Party maintained its principled anti-war stance. This included Mussolini initially. However, his doubts were becoming more pressing. The internationalist movement was dead, and he feared that the movement was now fighting against a great historical opportunity. He thought of Italy and Italians as untested and unreliable to achieve true change and greatness. This war could change that. It could harden the common Italian and forge him into an instrument of change that Mussolini had been looking for. This would not be a colonial war out in the desert. It would be a test against an age-old enemy in the Austrians. On the 18th of October, he published an article in Avanti calling for intervention, 
justifying it by stating that the previous war against the Turks had been aggressive. This one, though, would turn back the autocratic Kaisers and liberate the pieces of Italy still ruled by Austria. Inaction was unjustifiable and would doom the party. The very next day, the party executive met, and Mussolini attempted to defend his turn towards militarism. He did not convince anybody, though, and he resigned his position as editor. A month later, he was formally expelled from the Socialist Party. Mussolini, however, was ready for this move, and had secured funding from Italian businessmen and by March 1915, even the French government, to start up a new paper. This was called the Il Popolo d'Italia, and would serve as the fascist mouthpiece moving forward. Bridges to the socialists were then burned in spectacular fashion. He denounced class struggle and asserted that national identity was the way forward. Italy had to immediately join the conflict and secure for itself its prosperous future, internationalism be damned. He immediately ran to the problem in that his message really wasn't reaching anybody. Without the socialists, he was just a guy, and his paper failed to crack 2,000 daily copies in circulation. He had financial backers, but eventually they would expect results. He did, however, start making connections with a handful of the like-minded revolutionary nationalists that also found themselves at odds with the pacifistic nature of the Socialist Party. While not great in number, they all sought out some kind of change, and thought the war would deliver it. Here were the beginnings of the fascist movement. The relief of war did eventually come, though, and in May 1915 Italy joined, and everything that had been advocated for finally came true. Mussolini accepted being drafted in September of that year and headed off to the front. His initial stay did not last long, as he contracted typhus and was given a stay back home to recover. It was on December 17, 1915, that he finally married Rochelle. I'm going to stop and point out a fun little piece of uh, marital trivia for him. Records show that Mussolini had sometime in 1914 already been married. One of his mistresses, of which there were several, was a beautician named Ida Dalzer. Apparently, their affair got serious enough that there was some kind of marriage ceremony. She delivered a child in 1915, which she named Benito Mussolini Jr., just so nobody was confused. She also apparently sold her salon to help fund Mussolini when his proto-fascist newspaper was struggling. Records are nebulous to just how official their marriage was, and this is especially true since the fascist regime did everything it could to destroy evidence of it. He was probably a bigamist, though. Whatever the status, Rochelle became Mussolini's official wife, and poor Ida had her life ruined. She had sold her livelihood to support Mussolini, and while she got some alimony from him, was otherwise thrown aside and unacknowledged. When Mussolini became dictator, he had her and their son watched, and when she started speaking out against him, he had her thrown in an asylum, where she died due to a brain hemorrhage in 1937. Or she was obviously murdered. Benito Jr. didn't have a good time of it either. He was told his mother was dead after she was locked up and was adopted by a fascist official. He was told to stop spreading stories of his parentage, but refused to do so. He too was taken to an asylum and murdered in July 1942, just 27 years old. Mussolini never stopped sleeping around, though. He just never tried to marry another mistress. Okay, tangent over. The war provided Mussolini, and so many other future fascists, a chance to establish their street cred. The time at the front provided the future Il Duce the chance to point at experience and say that he had fought, and when he sent future generations to fight, that he was merely asking them to do as he had done. He served in the trenches, 
such as they were in the hills and mountains, and was described as having fought bravely. He attained the rank of corporal, the same rank as his counterpart, Adolf Hitler. Mussolini's military career was much shorter, though, as a mortar managed to land inside his trench, riddling his body with shrapnel in February 1917. He returned to his newspaper afterwards, and his views had only become more radicalized. He had seen the future in the trenches, among the brave and those willing not only to risk their own lives, but to take the lives of others as well. The military disaster at Caporetto only served to amplify his call for the militarization of society as a whole. He watched the liberal democracy of Italy recede in that year of crisis, and realized the power that could be wielded as the nation desperately pulled itself back together via authoritarian measures. Here was the formula he needed. A militarized society managed by a state with unchecked power, and led by a man of both vision and total control. That was the pathway forward. And he would be that dictator. The end of the war was a moment of danger that threatened to return the nation back to the old status quo, but the failures of the government to make good on its promises and the, and the demands of the socialist movement kept the situation fluid. He reached out to various groups of servicemen who had been organizing themselves in the provinces, along with his band of political misfits, and some of them to Milan. On the 23rd of March, the group of a roughly 100 presented themselves, and together began to sketch out their plan of action. This was the original meeting I laid out back in episode 6, where the fascists formally presented themselves as the alternative to socialism and the increasingly discredited liberal state. And that is where this particular story links up with Italy as a whole. So now you know the basics of a dictator's early life. The chip on his shoulder was undeniable, his work ethic was unrelenting, and his all-consuming ambition was the only constant once he even got a taste of influence. It was that ambition that was the most important characteristic. All his life he gravitated towards the ideology that offered the best ladder upwards for someone of little means. For a long time that meant socialism, but as soon as its ideology proved constricting to his interests, and where he thought the zeitgeist was going, he ditched out. From that point forward, he basically subscribed to a belief system, fascism, that allowed for flexibility of belief and an opportunity to assert his personal dominance which he probably had wanted to do since being treated as a third-class student based on his social status. His rough-and-tumble life up to this point made him adept at leveraging his limited opportunities, and he became only more adept after, th after this point. It was also probably the seeds of his own undoing, as he was very capable of taking risks, but less good at having coherent plans and goals. And eventually even his luck would run out, but that's for another day. Having reached the point where he truly enters the national stage, that's where I'll leave you and Italy for now. Next week, we'll get started on a whole new nation, also a victor and also dysfunctional, France. This series will be a little quicker, as the real chaos only gets going a little later, but there's still some inter interesting stuff as an entire nation grapples with PTSD. I'll see you next week, and as always, thank you very much for listening.